0: This month, our Wednesdays will be rewinds of previous episodes with new stories every Sunday. But hang in there, folks. We are working on a significant change beginning the first week in September, which marks our fifth anniversary. Thank you for your patience as we fine-tune our exciting new plans. The song you're listening to is On My Own by Master TC and The Visitors. Homegrown in Sandusky, Ohio. Master TC is our featured musical artist for this week. So stick around till the end of the podcast. We'd love to play the whole song for you and tell you how to find out more about this amazing talent. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. We've got a brand new mystery for you. I know you've heard of Jack the Ripper, but have you ever heard of Jack the Clubber? A serial killer that once stalked the streets of Toledo. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me as always is our storyteller, Paula Schleiss, a multi-award-winning journalist who spent 30 years writing news and features for the Akron Beacon Journal.
1: Hi, everybody.
0: How have I never heard of Jack the Clubber?
1: I know, right? Actually, while newsmen tried to handle Jack the Clubber early on, the name that permanently stuck was the Toledo Clubber. But even by that name, I had never heard of this guy until recently. And when you hear about his reign of terror, you're going to be surprised he wasn't a household name.
0: Okay, fill us in. What year are you taking us to? Well, for
1: this one, we're going back to 1925. 1925. This is about 37 years after Jack the Ripper in London, so that's why early accounts tried to draw a few comparisons right off the bat. And like the Ripper, the Toledo Clubber would end up with a semi-official death toll of five, although the Clubber had many more victims that survived his assault. Unlike the Ripper, he didn't use a knife, and he didn't assault prostitutes. He always used a blunt object, sometimes a brick or a bottle, once an iron rod, another time an automobile crank, and his victims were women he randomly picked out on the city's fashionable west side. Not women of the night, huh? Not women of the night. Well, they are always caught at night walking about, but they were not women of the night. Okay. Now, there's something else unique about this guy, Steve, something that no doubt added to the heightened hysteria that that was about to grow around his crimes. He wore red paint on his face, and as he swung his weapon at their heads, he would laugh, this maniacal sound that one survivor described as coming straight from hell. Huh. Now, before I go any further, I need to add a disclaimer. As a reporter... I try really hard to get my facts straight because some things are forever, and I don't want to pass on false information that will get written into a history book. But the reporting on this was over-the-top sensational. I mean, they called this guy a demon in the headlines. So clearly, there were no fact-checkers on this story. And between accounts, names changed, ages changed, circumstances changed, dates changed. On a personal level, I'm not even convinced every single one of these attacks was the same guy. Okay. Certainly, this was a time that any copycat could have had a whirl and not taken the blame. And we'll actually visit that idea later in this episode with one particular victim. But with that disclaimer, historically speaking, all the victims I'm going to talk about have been grouped together as the work of the Toledo Clubber. Now, the first victim appears to be Emma Hatfield. She was 48 years old and lived not too far from her sister. She'd been visiting her sister on the evening of May 24, 1925. And in the night, it was time for her to go home. So she took to the streets and suddenly, out of the darkness, this madman struck, beating her savagely and leaving her for dead. Now, there was an eyewitness who said they saw a nude man fleeing the scene which was odd, because no one will ever report him being nude again, and it makes me wonder at the accuracy of that if detail. If that was even here, okay. yeah.
0: No red paint on the face?
1: Um, well, Emma was only conscious long enough to tell police that the attacker wasn't her husband. And that was good for him, because the couple was estranged. Oh. And if she died before she could exonerate him, who knows what would have happened. But she ruled him out while she had the little voice that she had left to do it. Okay. Very early reports said the scene was so bloody and her wounds so severe. At first, it was believed she'd been attacked with an ax. But all future reports on this described her attacker as wielding a club. Now, poor Emma, she held on for four months. She would die of her injuries in September. Oh, man, that's a long time. It is a long time but not before the clubber struck a second time. Oh. Now on August 21, Lydia Baumgardner was found dead. Between Baumgardner. Another Baumgardner. Wow. Yeah. Very near where Emma Hatfield had been attacked. Lydia was 24 and the mother of two, and her skull had been crushed. Ooh. Unlike Emma, she didn't live long enough to declare her husband's innocence. And when neighbors told police she'd been quarreling with him the night before, they promptly arrested him. All right. But eventually they released the guy. So it was probably the third attack that started putting Toledo on edge and wondering if they had a serial killer on the loose. That came September 21. It was exactly one month. One month, right. After Lydia was killed and just a few days after Emma had died of her injuries. 50-year-old Beth Hall left her home on Collingwood Avenue to mail a letter. Now, Beth would survive the attack, and she became the first witness able to describe her assailant and remark on that maniacal laugh. She said he came out of nowhere swinging a club at her head, she screamed and raised her arms up to ward off a second blow, but something frightened the clubber off, and he took off running before the second blow fell. Now, over the next two months, as more attacks happened, the city of 250,000 residents came together to try and protect its women. Boy Scouts and pairs were volunteering to escort female workers to their jobs and back. Boy Scouts. Boy Scouts. Okay. The American Legion signed up hundreds of ex-servicemen to serve as vigilantes. These would have been men not too far off from the World War I service. Yeah. And female police officers were dressing up as housewives and walking the streets wearing hats that had been lined with steel, hoping to lure him out, possibly knowing they'd have to take a first blow. I hope I get hit tonight. Well, that's, that's know, something. It, it, how brave! That yeah, how exactly. brave! And 150 special railroad detectives joined the city's police force in their nightly patrol.
0: So railroad detectives, because there's obviously railroads going through there, and it could be maybe or somebody it might came have in. just
1: been all hands on deck. And if you've got some skill in this. We need you.
0: So do we know about how many attacks so far, or you just said there was a bunch of attacks?
1: Right now, uh, I've told you about three. Okay, and then you said that there was- we got a lot more to go. Okay,
0: now I have another question, and maybe yeah. you'll get to this later, but Toledo, is it a specific area in Toledo? Because Toledo's a big area.
1: It is. It is the city's west end, and by the time this whole situation is over, that west end is going to be renamed the Clubber District. Oh. Oh, that's not because there are nightclubs. a lot of clubs, not nightclubs. Okay, no. not a good. The naked guy how. with the red face. So yeah, they're all uh, they're all in the same area, a very fashionable side of town. Okay. So many many women they're refusing to leave their homes for anything after dark, but that wasn't an easy choice for many others. It was winter, and darkness fell in the afternoon. Many women had responsibilities, they had jobs to do and errands to run and children to see to. Yeah, I
0: mean everybody from this area knows it gets dark around four thirty.
1: Absolutely. You know? yeah. So the city was still filled with plenty of prey, and the Toledo Clubber was about to have the most active week of his terrible reign. Oh no. So let me run through a few of these here. November 16, Wilma Headley, she's a twenty-four-year-old telephone operator. She leaves work, and she's walking along 20th Street toward home when a man comes out from behind a large tree swinging at her. The powerful blow missed her head but struck her shoulder, sending her to the ground. More blows fell, but a car turned the corner, and the headlights scared him away, and she survived, reporting that red face and that terrible laugh. Two nights later, November 18, Frida Darheim... She's walking a short distance from her sister's house when a shadow falls on her. Two quick blows fractures her skull. She, too, would get lucky. A 17-year-old named Raymond Gordon was about 200 feet away when he saw the attack, and he ran to her aid, screaming, and the clubber ran off, laughter in his wake.
0: Now, are, these, are, are there some deaths here? Are these...
1: These, both of those women survived. Okay. Yeah, we've, we've got more survivors than right. fatalities. Okay. So two nights after that, on November 20, two more women would survive their assaults. On that night at 8.45 p.m., Catherine Knight stepped outside the rear of her home to take out the garbage. She was struck down but did not die. Then at 10 o'clock on Adam Street, about two miles from Catherine's home, 20-year-old Pauline Winiver was sitting in a car at the curb, waiting for her companion to come out of a store. You're not even safe in a car. The clubber runs to the passenger door, yanks it open, and pulls at her. He's trying to yank her out of the car. And he swings something at her, but the object hits the top of the sedan. The commotion is enough to draw the attention of witnesses who run toward him, and he takes off running and... You know what Pauline remembers about him? What's that? His eyes were circled with red paint. Huh. So this had to just be so unnerving. I mean, yeah. it's bad enough you're getting attacked. But... Oh, it sounds
0: like he must have been looking a long time that night and seeing somebody get in the car, probably frustrated that they were getting in a car and came to try to pull her out.
1: Yeah, or frustrated, uh, the first one not working out for whatever reason and decide he's got to go get a second one and... Obviously, he had an appetite that night that needed to be filled. And as all of these women are surviving, they're able to add more and more details to the clubber's appearance. They described him as wild-looking, beast-like, with superhuman strength. They said he was tall and shaggy, that his eyes were bloodshot, that he had a sharply hooked nose, that he had a prominent, irregular upper teeth that protruded over his lower lip. And a newspaper artist tried his hand at a composite sketch. Getty Lee? And published. Who's Getty Lee?
0: You're the lead singer for Rush has that hooked nose. No? Oh. Okay.
1: okay. Well, one flew over. A yeah. <laughs> Anyway, the, the newspaper uh, published this composite sketch, and it looks like a drawing straight out of a horror movie. It made me think of the Hyde side of, of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And we'll put it on the, the website, oh, Go Go check it out. Anyway, a couple of the women also said that he muttered something about all women being fickle, and at least two women heard that phrase. So now police are wondering, is he brooding over some... You know, unrequited love or unhappy love affair.
0: Yeah. Anyway. uh, Ted Bundy. Is that that the case with him? Well, yeah. He attacked uh, women that looked like the woman who turned him down.
1: Oh, no. You know, I guess I didn't know
0: that about him. Yeah. Okay. Of course, um, they ended up, like, getting back together, and then right when they got engaged, he, like, dumped her, said nothing to her, and then started killing people who looked like her.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, anyway, the the Toledo Clubber, his work was not done. There were three more attacks before the end of the year. Viola Chatham was attacked in a restaurant in the Union Station, and she was only saved because two men came to the rescue and drove the assailant away. Lorraine Braun was 18 years old. She was found unconscious laying on the street. She survived. And Cora Batchelor was the second telephone company employee to be attacked, The 33-year-old was walking at the edge of what was being called the Clubber District. When the man leaped into view, she had enough time to beg him. She pleaded with him to let her go and not hit her. But she said he responded with a laugh, and her quote was, It was the most awful thing I ever heard. It didn't sound human. And then he struck. Now on November 29, police make an arrest. And the city is breathing a sigh of relief. There are a couple of hunters, Stanley Novak and Charles Pozny. They found a man in the woods. According to published reports, he was wielding a hammer of, quote, unusual size. And it appeared to have blood on it. And when the man spotted the hunters, he whirled around and ran, evading them. But the hunters notified the sheriff and deputies ran out to the area and they were able to surround the man Capture him and haul him in.
0: You're not going to take my oversized hammer and just take off running? Oh,
1: yeah. Oh, yeah. protect with that hammer? Well, the the man said he'd been living in those woods for a couple of weeks. All right. Clearly, he was a, a homeless, probably a transient. Coming from the train, maybe? it Could be, because he said for a couple of weeks, so he came from somewhere else. He was 40 years old, and he went by the name of Robert August Molnar. He wore a gray slouch hat, a dirty gray overcoat, three pairs of trousers. It was winter. And he carried a bag filled with old newspapers and dried fruits and nuts. And wouldn't you know it, during interrogation, he was happy to confess, yes, I'm the man you want. I clubbed all the women. I'm Jack the Clubber. I'm Jack the Clubber. You know, but police took the man's photo to the home of Cora Batchelor. She was one of the surviving victims who had seen her attacker's face. A lot of them were struck from behind and and didn't, so she she had the freshest view of him. And reportedly, she became so hysterical when she saw his picture, she couldn't answer any of their questions for two hours. And when she regained her composure, she said she was almost positive it was the man who attacked her. Alas, other things weren't adding up. No other victims identified the man in the photo. Detectives were disappointed when August insisted he used an axe in all of his attacks. And the blood on his hammer turned out he was killing chickens. So they committed Molnar to Toledo State Hospital, declared him insane, and went back to work looking for the murderer. Okay. Molnar wasn't the only one police looked at. Men from Detroit to Denver had been arrested in question. The Toledo Clubber was national news, and people all over the country were bracing for the next report of these attacks.
0: Do we have a death count at this point, or is it just pretty tough to tell? We
1: are at two dead. Two dead and and a bunch. And eventually there will be um, a total of 13 attacks. Okay. So you're going to have eight survivors and five dead.
0: Okay. Um, any sexual assault or attempted a sexual assault with
1: this? Um, well, I'm going to get to that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to get to All that. Right. So the next attack comes just a couple of weeks into the new year. On January 19, 1926 now, Mary Handley is found dead in her neighbor's yard. This is going to be the third fatality. All right. Her head had been smashed by repeated blows, and there was a trail of blood that led to the front yard where her hat was found. Now, the reports weren't clear as to whether they thought she was dragged or whether she had crawled to the spot where she eventually died. I, I wonder how bad, I mean,
0: this seems like one he was able to wail on for a while. I bet you this one was pretty bad.
1: Yeah, you know, I guess it's just...
0: It's, like Jack the Ripper, you know, the double night where he killed two, it was like one was he was interrupted and the second one he was able to, you to know, really mess up. Yeah, Yeah, it's almost like he was raged.
1: Well, this one may have quelled him for a while because there were no new attacks for several months, not until October 26th of that year, when police connected the clubber to the death of Lily Dale Croy. Now, she was a popular 26-year-old teacher at Gunkel School and a member of a prominent Toledo family. She attended the University of Toledo and usually drove to her night classes But on this evening, she decided to walk. Her worried mom called police when the hour got unusually late, and they retraced her steps, and at 1.35 a.m., they found her. Her body had been stuffed under a fire escape at Washington School. Her head was crushed, and her clothes were torn from her body. In a couple of days, an iron bar with blood and matted hair would be found near the crime scene. Oh, boy. Now, just 18 hours after Lily was murdered, police were called to another beating death. So we've got two deaths in one day. But this one wasn't on the street. This was a Mrs. George Alden. She was 25. She was beaten to death in the kitchen of her home. Wow, this
0: is so, not saying that this is like uh, Jack the Ripper, but you know, Jack the Ripper, he would always kill outside, and his last one, he killed inside. And he had a uh, field day
1: with that one, so. Changed his MO. Well, yeah. I, I don't know. Was, was she the victim of the clubber? You know, that definitely wasn't his MO. But still, many keeping count racked up the clubber's tally now to 13 attacks, five of them fatal. And then the Toledo clubber appeared to be done. Whether he was dead or left town or just decided he'd had enough. Could be in jail for a different crime. Or in jail for something else, absolutely. Right. You know, we'll, we'll never know. But the story's not done. So two years passed without incident, and then this really disturbing case had people thinking about the clubber again. On May 29, five-year-old Leona Selikowski woke her family at 4 a.m. screaming. Her parents dashed into her room that she shared with her seven-year-old sister, Dorothy, and found Dorothy missing, apparently snatched right from the bed that the two little sisters shared. Oh, man. Their father, Alex Lagowski ran to the front door just in time to see a man shoving his daughter into a car and driving away. Now, the kidnapper returned not long after he'd taken Dorothy, and he dropped the girl's dead body off across the street on the porch of the house where the father Alex's brother-in-law lived. Oh, man. She had been sexually assaulted, strangled with her bloomers, then bludgeoned.
0: What is bloomers?
1: Those are the long, they kind of look like pants, but they were underwear. They go underneath your dress. Okay. So there, there were also teeth marks on her body, and that is what's going to give the killer away. Police eventually match the teeth marks to Charles Hope. Now, Hope is a 25-year-old taxi driver who knew the Seligowskis. His wife was their cousin, and he had even lived with them for a time. He confessed. He said he'd gotten drunk at a wedding, stole a car, went to the Seligowskis with the intent of taking some of their liquor, but when he saw the little girls laying in bed, he lost control. Here's the thing. In the midst of his confession, he copped to killing the schoolteacher, Lily Croy, the woman who had been disrobed by the man who had bashed her head in. So here's where I wonder if Lily's death was not the work of the clubber. Back when she was killed, one newspaper reported that a witness saw a taxi driver in the area, and Hope was a taxi driver. Another article had talked about her being criminally assaulted, which sounded like a euphemism for rape. So considering none of the other Clubber's victims, from what I could tell, had been sexually assaulted, the circumstances with Lily seemed less similar to the Clubber's MO and a little closer To what eventually happened to little Dorothy. Right. Um, So maybe Hope was on the hook for both of those.
0: Yeah, maybe. I'm thinking that um, maybe he clubbed her to make it look like it was just another... Take advantage of of the
1: hysteria. Now, um,
0: if that was the case, the clubber's last attack would have been in January.
1: Or uh, if it was the second woman who was clubbed to death in her kitchen. Yeah. It would have been still that 18 hours after Lily was killed. Okay. But the prosecutor, he's not buying Hope's confession. He, Hope's not a copying to any of the other tax. And the police seemed really determined to put Lily Croy's death on the Toledo Clubber. So it's sort of like you take them all or you're not taking any. And also the prosecutors noted that Hope was pleading insanity. So, I don't know, adding Croy's death to his tab, could that have been some kind of ploy to bolster the argument that he was nuts? In the end, Hope was found guilty of killing Dorothy, and he died in the electric chair on November 30, 1928. You know, that was just six months after he did the deed. How fast justice worked back then. It's pretty quick. Um, The electric chair, wow. Oh, yeah, that's no... um
0: no time for plea and I mean, uh, what's that called? Appeals. Right? Appeals. Yeah, no, no time, time for, for appeals. Bills. No.
1: Yeah. And you know he was, and he was never convicted of killing Lily Croy, and nobody paid the price for any of the tax during the Toledo Clubber's two-year crime spree.
0: Wow. Well, you know, uh, we t- we're talking about this guy clubbing and no sexual assault. That's kind of weird. Uh, it's almost like Son of Sam, where he was killing just to kill no uh, no uh, sexual assaults yeah it was
1: it, it just seemed like pure rage
0: yeah so let's get some thoughts from tonight's armchair detective at this point in our podcast we selected ohio mysteries listener to review the story in advance and share their thoughts and theories welcome amy klinger
2: Hello, everyone.
1: Hi, Amy. Thanks for joining us tonight. Amy you. Amy is a professor of education administration at Ashland University, and she is also the founder and director of programs for the Educators School Safety Network, which is a national nonprofit. Tell us a little bit about what that is, Amy.
2: Uh, we are primarily a training organization, uh, but we work to keep kids and educators safe in schools and unfortunately there is a lot of there are a lot of uh, issues threats and incidents that need to be responded to so we're a training organization and we provide resources and consulting and technical support for educators to help them keep kids safe every day. Boy the
1: need for that just continues to grow And Amy is from Genoa, which is a little place outside of Toledo, about 15 minutes outside of Toledo. So you are close to that area. I've got to ask, Amy, have you ever heard of the Toledo Clubber before?
2: No, I have not. I've lived my whole life. I was born in Toledo. I've lived my whole life in this area. But uh, while I'm old, I was not around in 1925, but I have never heard of it. And I like to study local history, so it's pretty surprising.
1: That is amazing because it it doesn't sound like this was a flash in the pan. I mean this guy was terrorizing the community for a couple of years, but Yeah, it, it was a thing. Yeah. Well, it was almost 100 years ago, so the the, the time certainly has uh, faded a lot of memories on this. So it's it's kind of interesting to bring it back and and recall what that was about. So Yeah, well,
2: it's interesting for me cuz my grandma, my grandparents were living in Toledo right around that time in the er- In the mid-20s, they lived in Toledo before they moved out this way, so they were right in the thick of things. Oh, my
1: goodness. Are they still with us? No, no. Okay. All right. That would have been interesting to see if they remembered, because I I certainly would have. You know, in the the stories that I was reading online, every time they mentioned the West End of Toledo, they talked about it being a very middle-class yet fashionable neighborhood. What's the West End like today?
2: Well, I think it's referring to the Old West End, where there are some absolutely gorgeous houses. Um, it what parts of the what's now called the Old West End were very, very affluent names like Drummond and Scott and Libby and all the names that you know were very wealthy families lived in the West End. And then I think from there, the the rest of the West End, you know, was maybe not as affluent as that central part where a lot of the mansions were, but it was, there's, and and today, if you drive through, there's some beautiful old houses there.
1: Wow. I, I'm really interested in just your general thoughts of this case. We'll delve into a couple things specifically, but what's your overall thought of, of this entire scenario?
2: Well, you know, being an educator, I took a lot of notes as I was listening. Um, awesome. And the one, the one thing that kind of struck me, as I sort of looked at it over, is I, just, I just thought it was very interesting in your recounting of it that the first two attacks were related to an estranged husband or some sort of domestic issue, which in 1925, I mean, clearly those things happened, and clearly there was divorce and that sort of thing, but it would have been much more rare for. A woman to be estranged from her husband or to, you know, to have it be publicly known that they weren't getting along. And so I just thought that was very interesting that the first two started that. And it makes me wonder, you know, you always look at what's the catalyst for someone to begin this sort of a rampage, which essentially is what it was. And so I just thought that was interesting that that common thread between those first two two victims was that there was a domestic problem that there was, and, you know, and maybe in someone's mind that's looked at as, you know, they're being disrespectful to their husband or they're being, you know, something that's outside of the norm that somehow... Um, needed to be punished or something that's what struck me as I as you started going through the recountings
1: that is interesting I hadn't thought of that so you thought that might have even been a possible motivation for for the attacker the fact that these women had been estranged from their husbands
2: well and and in some of the cases not all of them but because again I don't know a lot of the details but in some of the cases as you recounted them all A lot of the victims seem to be doing something that a, a very traditional, I don't know what kind of word we want to use, would say is outside of the norm. So here's people, women that were working outside of the home as telephone operators and right. women that were out and about driving or being a teacher as a professional person. So, I mean, I just thought that was kind of interesting, too, that a lot of the women were doing things that maybe in someone's sort of warped mind would be not what women are supposed to typically do during that time period. That
1: is, I had not even thought of that. That is really insightful. You know, it sounds like at least a couple of these situations he yelled out or at least muttered something about fickle women. So Mm -hmm. it definitely seems, you know, there was a gender issue with him there.
2: Yeah. And the other thing that I thought was weird is that they were all in different situations. Some were walking, some were inside, some were outside in a car, in a restaurant, in the home, in the yard. I mean, and that, I, you know, and I'm not, uh, you know, a big expert on, you know, serial killers or, or anything like that, but you know, it seems like there were so many variances, which I think you talked about the idea that maybe it wasn't even the same person. But so many variables of like, so maybe the location wasn't what was the common thread, you know, the, the common um, motivation. It, you know, maybe it was something about those individuals and it didn't matter where they were.
1: I'm glad you brought up the the idea where I had mentioned maybe these cases weren't all connected. The little bit that you were able to get from all of them, could you see this as a situation where maybe a couple of these didn't fit, especially the the Lily situation, the teacher? Yeah. In your mind, could you see maybe a couple of murderers thinking they were going to get away with something if they could pin it on this this other? It's killer.
2: Well, I don't know about that, but I do think that, you know, it seemed pretty consistent in terms of, you know, blunt, you know, blunt object or whatever. But on the other hand, in 1925, uh, what else are you going to use? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's not like you have the ability to, you know, yeah, you could strangle someone or poison them or whatever, but I mean, the most, I would think the most common elements you could find is something that you would hit somebody with. So it seems like you could have other issues of domestic violence or attempted rape or whatever where someone would use a blunt force to commit the same crime, and it's not necessarily the Toledo clubber that's doing it.
1: Yeah, it seemed to me that the item that was being used in almost every case seemed different. Um, Because when they rattled off what had been used in hindsight, they they were just a variety of objects. Like maybe they were just tools of opportunity and not really impulsive,
2: impulsive sort of things. The only thing that flies in the face of the impulsiveness, like, oh, I just, you know, overcome with rage and do this thing. Is the instances where the victim saw that he had painted his face, which certainly gives uh, some, you know, pre uh, planning sort of thing, you know, premeditation of, I'm going to go out and do this thing. So it can't always be that it was just entirely impulsive because he took the time to paint his face.
1: You know, the image of him painting his face and the laugh, the maniacal laugh that they talked about all the time, it just makes the skin
2: on my forearms want to stand up. It's well, but you know, you also have to think about the journalism of the time. This sells papers, you know? And so if you got to dress it up a little bit, we'll add in a maniacal laugh. So some of that you can embellish, but the painted face, it either was or wasn't, you know, that's that's kind of, you can't really explain that away. The other, the, the laugh or the wild eyes or whatever, you can maybe explain away to try to, you know, that you're embellishing it a bit to make it more interesting. But the paint, the face paint, it either, if it was there, that's a, you know, that's a pretty intentional kind of thing.
1: That's in a police report, absolutely. Yeah,
2: yeah. So when we get to the um, um, hope, um,
1: Charles Hope, the taxi mm-hmm. driver who ends up being convicted of, of killing and molesting the little girl, he ends up copping to the um, killing of Lily Croy, the teacher, who the police really want to attribute to the Toledo Clubber. But he doesn't admit to any of the other Toledo Clubber victims. What do you make of that? I mean, do you agree with this one detective's contention that he was just throwing in Lily Croy because he wanted... Um, the insanity plea and and somehow adding this would make him seem crazier or
2: yeah, I, I think the the sexual assault part of it doesn't run through all the other ones, but yet it appears in that particular case and in the the to what to me is even more horrific, the abduction of the little girl is the one that was to me the most disgusting, horrific part of the whole the whole case was the, this little girl. Um, but, but that the sexual assault part doesn't really run through the other ones. And, you know, in that day and age, I would assume that, that Charles Hope pretty much knew what was going to happen to him if he admitted to killing one person. So if he really had done the other ones, he, why wouldn't he have admitted to those? So, I mean, I, I would tend to take him at his word in terms of what he, you know, what he admitted to, and, and I suppose from a police perspective, they wanted to tie it all up. Because here's the other problem: is if on October nineteen twenty-six, whatever that day was, when both of those victims occurred, Lily Croy and Mrs. Alden, right. that's a lot of violence in one day. Right. And I think, you know, police-wise, or you know, community-wise, you'd want to believe it's one crazed madman. Not that you got two different people out and about doing that kind of horrific violence. So, you know, maybe there's a little bit of the psychological of wanting to explain it away to just one evil person instead of acknowledging that you might have multiple.
1: Well, and the other thing that was odd about Mrs. Alden was her being beaten to death in the kitchen of her home. That seems like a big... Mm-hmm. Change Deposit from his mo. Yeah, of just grabbing yeah. people who are easy on the street.
2: The other thing that I and I don't didn't look it up. I probably should have. But the uh, you know, when was the Lindbergh baby? The one was the Lindbergh kidnapping. Wasn't that right around that same time? Because that's kind of interesting. That you know, people it, today, if you describe this crime involving Dorothy, this little girl, if you describe this crime. People are going to think it happened, you know, in the eighties or the nineties or just recently. People don't realize that this kind of horrific violence was taking place in
1: 1925. Oh, yeah. A- actually, a lot. Uh, it's interesting, the clippings, when I go back to do this research, this stuff is on every front page every yeah. day. It's, uh, okay, Lindbergh, 1932. So that would be okay, so about was six, seven years that. after. Okay. Right, right. So we're kind of leaning then toward hope being guilty of lily croy as he confessed as well as the little girl that would take lily out of the hands of the toledo killer would kind of make sense then because the other ones weren't sexually assaulted yeah um so what happened to this guy i mean he's crazed for two years he's doing this rampage they never catch him and and then it just ends what do you think happened to this guy
2: well again I I don't know a ton about profiling and things like that but I know I have read in the, in other contexts that when they have these long periods where nothing happens and then it comes again I know sometimes they've gone back and looked at the nature of the person that when they eventually find him like was he a traveling salesman did he or you know some sort of job or lifestyle where he's gone for a while and then comes back you know a truck driver uh a hobo, a transient guy, whatever it is. But sometimes when you have those periods where there's nothing happening, it's not because he's not doing it. It's because he's not doing it in Toledo.
1: Good point. Yeah, good point. There certainly and, and I
2: don't know that. I'm just saying I've I've seen that in the past where they've begun to connect ones from different sites. You know, based on this guy that's you know traveling, and all of a sudden he's in another state and. They have these things happen. So, you know, your Toledo clubber could have been, you know, in in Chicago committing these crimes for a while and maybe never came back to Toledo. So, you know.
1: Yeah, I can see that. There are certainly several serial killers, Ted Bundy uh, being among them, who they were all over the country. Yeah, Yeah,
2: exactly. And the other thing that, you know, I know if you look at the history of Toledo in the 20s, um, you know, during Prohibition and stuff, there were a lot of gangster sort of related things of things that were happening between Chicago and Toledo and Detroit and that Toledo was sort of the the minor leagues for some of the Chicago kind of gangsters. And so, you know, if you have a lot of people who, you know, are attracted to that sort of violence from a gang perspective or gangster perspective, it's not too big of a stretch to think that they're not gonna be too put off by attacking women.
1: You know, I just thought, I mean, you're bringing up the Depression era, but what about hobos too that are just hopping train cars? Maybe this is a guy that's just going back and forth between different locations and
2: just got a deranged one. The other thing that kind of struck me too is that how many times somebody frightened him off. So he clearly wasn't super careful, like waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. I mean, he takes the time to paint his face, But it doesn't look like he was, uh, you know, how many different instances was he doing this right in front of, practically, in front of someone else, you know, where there was a guy or a car turns the corner or whatever. So it kind of feels like maybe it was more opportunity of, like, just seeing somebody. But I don't know. I just thought that was interesting that he got scared off so many times.
1: I think that's one of the things that frustrated me the most about this case. So many people saw him. So many people chased him. You know, it it was not, you know, private all the time. And yet, after two years, after a thousand men on the streets, you know, kind of being deputized to go out there and look for this guy, they never caught him. Yeah, because I
2: think if, if you go back and look at other serial killers, a lot of times, they, you know, very rarely does it, has anyone seen them or had they done it in front of anyone else. I mean, that I thought that was kind of strange that so many of these people either saw him, survived, or I mean, so clearly he wasn't very good at it.
1: Well, and he pulls the one woman out of the car while she's parked in front of a store. But he can't, I mean, and doesn't even hit her. <laughs> it doesn't even, isn't able to. But I mean, yeah. clearly he wasn't really cared about, he didn't care about privacy at that moment. He's, no. he's just losing it.
2: Yeah, in a restaurant, you know, on the street. And I just thought that was weird that, you know, he got chased off so many times. So clearly he wasn't a criminal mastermind.
1: No. And yet it got away with it. Yeah. Amy, Thank you so much. Is there anything we haven't talked about you want to bring up?
2: No, not really. Like I said, the only thing that struck me, that you know, in looking at some of this was, you know, people think this stuff only has happened in the last 10 years or something. And look at all the horrific violence you described in 2 years, you know, in 19 in 1925 when we think supposedly everyone was so much safer, you know, back in the day. Steve
1: just uh, handed me a note. He said that uh, Jack the Ripper had a night with two kills. They called it the double event, and the detectives always thought that his first kill that night was interrupted, and because he was frustrated, he had to go out and kill again.
2: I think in yeah, this, this case— Yeah, this guy had yeah. two in one night, didn't he? Yes, a twice he had uh, yeah, two in one night. Yeah, twice he had night. two in one night. Yeah. Well, I'm sure he was frustrated. If every time he kept trying to do it, somebody would see him and chase him. Uh, chase him off. I mean, he clearly wasn't, you know, real great
1: at it. This is crazy. I really—I can't believe this guy isn't a household name. I mean, this was not a small affair back then.
2: Well, but don't you think some of it is because they never caught it? So it kind of fades away. You don't have a a name or a face or anyone to blame. It's more like a ghost or a demon. that it's like, you know, they said in the story where they called him a demon. It's this nameless, faceless sort of apparition, and you never catch him, and you don't, so you can't, you know, I I think that's part of it, is just just the fact that there's, yeah, it just fades away because it stopped. And like like it was a bad dream
1: yeah wow well thank you so much for sharing your insights it was great fun talking to you yeah i
2: appreciate it thanks so much it was a great opportunity all right
0: that's it for tonight listeners for photos news clippings and more on this and every episode hop on over to ohiomysteries.com also for more shows like ours Head on over to KillerPodcasts.com. We are a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune into disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.